Welcome to Audible Brutality. Two grouchy musicians humorously complaining about the state of music today. Featuring Adam Percy and Tim Vandevan. Take it away, Adam and Tim. Ladies and gentlemen, over there, we've got Adam Percy. What's going on, bro? He's underwater again. Ladies and gentlemen, he's oh. underwater. It must, it must be springtime in British California. That's that's what it must be. <laughs> that's just that's just coffee, because we're doing a, a morning recording, and man needs his coffee. Needs his coffee. Man I gotta needs his gargle coffee. with that shit. Mm. How are you, coffee boy? <laughs> I'm good, man. I'm good. How are you? Uh, you know, things things are good. Things, it's it's slowly turning into spring around here. Most yeah. of the snow is almost gone, so that's kind of nice. Same here. Yeah, it, there's still some uh, some frosty on the mountains, but other than that, uh, it is it's finally starting to warm up. Well, yeah. we, the chipmunk the chipmunks are out, which is making me happy. So I have to buy more peanuts at Dollarama to feed my chipmunks. <laughs> Got nuts in your pocket. <laughs> That's it. That's right. I am playing with my nuts in my pocket. Yeah, we're all class, all class on this show. Yeah, third class. <laughs> um, so I, I, we were, you and I were batting around the other day. Yeah, oh, sounds like Letter Kenny. The other day. The other day. That we, we were to be batting, far. Uh, to be far. We were batting around the idea. You only have one chance for a first impression. Now, our loyal listener hi rob swift hey rob may think that we're talking about suddenly we've gone da- to, to a dating site oh you only have one impression you know make sure you've combed your hair and brushed your teeth and you're wearing clean clothes and you you know you put something under your armpits sure <laughs> sure that's that's all important too yes but we're talking about in the musical sense where all right you know so you've you've got this killer band and your your band, you think, is the greatest thing since, I don't know, sliced music, whatever that is. And you've done a couple of shows, feeling pretty, pretty good about yourselves, might even have a song track somewhere. And then you decide, not just to invite your friends to your next show, but you, you say, oh, we're going to invite all these label guys. The question should be, is now the time to do that? Yes. Label label guys, booking guy, guys and gals, label guys and gals, anything industry, that's important. But mm. uh, I think to your point, Tim, you do have to ask yourself, when you think that time comes, are you ready to put your best foot forward? That's the important part. I was going to say, so my, my question for you is, has this happened to you before where you've been in a situation where you think just we need a little more work a little more a little more spit and polish as they say yeah oh yeah but somebody else in the but somebody in the band is like no we got to do this now yeah you, know? you and i have been in at least one band where there was some discussion about that and i've also been in situations where it's clearly been like uh, a little too early a little too early i don't think we should do this i always <laughs> think with things like this you could almost take a cue from the sports mm-hmm. world. You know, okay. one thing that I know like a lot of athletes and coaches do 
they, you know, because it, oftentimes they're actually being filmed <laughs> and recorded. Right. They often will go back and they'll review their performance. So they'll look at the performance of their the opposing team and, and look for gaps, mm-hmm. you know, right. that they can use to exploit to win the game. You know, a lot of that, I think, actually, you, you do need to do as a musician as well. It's it's like the phenomenon of a band coming into a studio and recording. You know, up until the point that the band comes into the studio, they've just been stuck in a room together, some horribly insulated mm-hmm. room with, like, you know, rat shit everywhere and beer bottles right. and whatever. You know, not that I'm speaking from experience or anything. And, you know, <laughs> but they all kind of, like hear things a certain way and they tend to be focusing on the stuff that they're doing themselves and how that fits into the sound of the room. And then you get them in the studio and all of a sudden they really have to hear themselves by themselves. And oftentimes musicians go, Oh, I sound like that. (laughs) Whoa. Like, Ooh, (laughs) like all of a sudden you have to apply critical listening and you're, you're Mm -hmm. looking at minutia details and listening to things all by themselves and realizing, Oh, that doesn't sound as good as it does in the practice space. Yeah. And I should get to the point here, but the point being that a lot of times people spend too much time in the rehearsal space mm-hmm. and not enough time critically looking at themselves. And then they do things like they have a big showcase and then showcase themselves in front of major record people thinking that they're absolutely on fire when really they're a dumpster fire. <laughs> They are on fire, but they're flaming shit. So (laughs) (laughs) you are that bag of poo on the on the front step of the neighbor that and wind up being yeah, and wind up being really discouraged when that label person uh, and gives them a pass. And a lot of that is, I think, Mm -hmm. the band isn't really looking at themselves in a critical way. They may be having fun in the rehearsal space and collectively sort of hearing all the noise and slowly going deaf. Um, I'm kind of rambling a bit, but I could use an example of one thing that you and I did in our, in the band that we were in, mm-hmm. North Star Jack in Toronto, is a simple solution to engage the audience, which is banter. <laughs> right. right. Banter in a live show is actually kind of critical for most people. Yes. You know, you're. this is when you engage the audience when they're not listening to your music because you're not playing, Right. So I've been in a, I, I was in, I remember being in a female fronted project where she really had difficulty aside from playing. She was fantastic playing, great singer, great writer. But the second that the music stopped, she didn't know what to do, you know? So the, then the whole idea of scripting some banter felt unnatural to her. Yeah. Right? You know, and I was attempting to say to her, look, the idea of scripted banter is that you get used to it. You're not Sammy Hagar saying, you guys are the loudest crowd we've ever had, you know? <laughs> How is everybody here in Chex Hand, New Haven, Connecticut? You know, like, <laughs> right? So it's it's not that, right? Or Chex back of guitar to see what, what town you're in. But I mean, some scripted banter where, you know, not, not to, I don't believe in giving too much away about the songs, you know, because people will make of the songs what they wish to make of the songs. It's up to the listener. The idea that uh, you have something a little scripted. Hey, so, uh, hey, thanks very much. Uh, over here on uh, lead synthesizer uh, and playing the guitar and not wearing any pants, Mr. Adam Percy. Uh. You know, something like that. <laughs> that um, has or, happened uh, before, yes. But anyway, continue. Well, that's it. Or like, you know, uh, a little story about, hey, so you're probably all wondering why Adam's pulling out the guitar, something that hasn't been cool in 35 years and was 
not really that cool then either. Well, <laughs> funny story. And then you tell the story and it's the same story that you tell the next night at the next show. Yeah. Again, first impression to engage because the problem is, is sometimes your audience will say, well, they were great, man, but they, they, they seem so into it themselves because they didn't talk to us. They didn't connect they didn't with the audience. Thanks. Yeah, totally. Yeah. They didn't say thanks. They stared at their shoes and it could be that you're not, it's not that you're really into yourselves and you think you're so great. You might actually be scared shitless on stage like, holy crap. And that, that happens. Stage fright is a thing. But you got to go through that a bit though. And you've got to be able to give an impression that you're supposed to be there on stage. You know that you're entertaining the room. You know, it's the whole dance monkey kind of thing. You better dance, you monkey. I, and I think like that's one way about the first impression is what do you see with the band what are you projecting? You know, are you projecting that you're too cool for school? Well, then you might lose people. I've seen the opposite of that, too. You mentioned, for example, like talking a lot about what this song means to them and what it's about. Mm. And that, you know, that one time that you were in a threesome and then your girlfriend left you for the girl you had the, the threesome other girl. with. And, you know, like, yeah. what? You know, oftentimes banter can also run away on itself. Uh, right. Some some people are very introspective. Maybe you're maybe you are a shoegazy band, and you manage to mumble mm -hmm. a you know a little thank you at the end of your song, and maybe that's enough because that's kind of what the audience expects. And maybe you're mm. sort of more like a folky Renaissance kind of person who, where banter between songs is kind of required, and that's what the audience likes to see. They want it. You're in a more mm. intimate setting, and they want that kind of connection, but. I have seen that run away too, where it's just like 10 minutes later, the guy's still talking about a song that he hasn't sung yet. And you're like, fuck man. Okay. All right. Well, what's the point? I think I'll just go get a beer now. Like going back to it, I think you need to find some tools that will help you to assess whether you're mm -hmm. a fucking banter big mouth or you're mm -hmm. not making any banter at all. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a little thing and it's only one thing that's part of you know, that whole presentation, that package that you put forward. This sort of happened to me once, a band I was in, where I had come in uh, as, of course, the drummer. <laughs> and I was also the engineer, mixer, recordist guy for, for their new album. Sure. And I'd heard the first two albums and I, you know, I kept hearing horror stories about, oh yeah, the last time we did this album, this, you know, the, the, the engineer did this and, you know, we didn't have the stuff ready. And, you know, the, the final mix was being done the day we're supposed to take it to the CD pressing house and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, fuck guys, you know, like you can't do that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> no, yeah, you can't do that. So, you know, I'm listening to these first albums that they've got and they're kind of rough, but not rough in that Velvet Underground, uh, Joy Division rough kind of way. <laughs> you know, fine, whatever. That's in the past. We're moving forward. We're The next one, we're going to put up, put our best foot forward. We're going to really, really, really work at this. And I'm pushing them, you know, when we're done with this, we're not just going to take this song and crank it through GarageBand and call it a mastering job. We're going to pay for a real mastering guy to sit yes. down <laughs> and do a good job on this and maybe put the IIRSC codes in, you know, that sort of stuff. <laughs> and like, just do a real job with this stuff and, may, and at the end of it, have a better sounding product. Yeah, we're on our way, working at it. Good, good, good. Everyone's on board. Good, good, good. We play a show and a friend of mine who has a deal with Warner uh, is at the show. And this friend of mine, comes to me after the first set and says, holy shit, you guys are amazing. I'm like, thanks. You know, because we'd been working a lot, practicing a lot, really like tightening up the whole thing. And 
Yeah, you there know, you go. Show made, a, show made a good first impression. There you go. And yeah. so she says, well, have you guys got anything? And I said, well, listen, we're working on, a, on an album right now that is going to be dynamite when it comes out. I can send you, if you like, a couple of, uh, of rough mixes if you want. I don't normally do that, but the new stuff is really, really, really good. And she says, okay, yeah, okay, please, because I want to get this to the, my friends at Warner because they're going to eat this up and they're going to love you guys. I'm thinking I just won the lottery, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> hello. Enter the other band members. <laughs> <laughs> they say, no, 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 no. Take the albums that we recorded before. Here you go. And I'm like, no, 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 no. These are not an accurate representation of what we sound like. These are not that good. No, no, no. They're fine. They're fine. Dude, that's like basically the opposite of that whole yeah. sports analysis where you're looking at the videotape and you're trying to sort of, hmm, how can I run this 100 meters better? Yeah. You're actually taking the time when you ran your first track meet in grade 10 <laughs> you know, <laughs> with your shoelaces untied going, that's good enough. <laughs> I can win the Olympics with that. That's good enough. No, you can't. <laughs> 25, no, sec- no, 25 no. seconds in the 100 meter. Who can top that, right? Yeah. yeah. No, let's let's just fast forward to complete disinterest because of those albums that were passed on. And I kept saying, no, 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 please, for the love of God, do not listen to those. Well, a a record is a snapshot in time and every artist, they get started somewhere. Of course, like, you know, all artists have like a demo, you know, their first sort of album. And it's very rarely that the first album that comes out is like polished perfection and the second coming of Radiohead. It's it's not. Yeah. Well, and even Radiohead would probably say, actually, oh, that first fucking album is shit. You know, yeah, like, we hate Pablo their first recording. They still like cringe when somebody asks them to play Creep in their set list. Yeah. But a recording is, like I said, a snapshot in time. And that person who came to your show with the deal at Warner is looking at a snapshot of your band now, yeah. <laughs> right? Fucking now. Not what you sounded like three, four years ago. Right fucking now. With like, different members. I, yes. I, I mean, I can only liken it to saying that you've met uh, a member of the opposite or same sex, however you roll, yeah. uh, that really, really is turning your crank, that is doing it for you, that, wow, I want to spend my time, perhaps my life with this person. And then you say, send me a picture because I want to show my mom a picture of you. And the picture they send to you is them on the toilet taking a shit. <laughs> Hot. That's what you've just done. <laughs> yeah, totally. That's what you've just done. Uh, I mean, you talk about an album being a snapshot. Greg Lake said it best. An album is like a check. Checks are useless pieces of paper. All they are is a promise to pay. Yeah. It, promise it's note. not, I give you a check, Adam, for 20 bucks. It's not actually 20 bucks. You have to take that check to the bank and then the bank says, let's go see if Tim actually has this 20 bucks for you, Adam. Oh, he does. Okay, yoink. Now yeah. you can have your 20 bucks. It's a promise to pay. Yeah. That's what an album is. And if your album is a stanker, that's a pretty bad promise you've just made. Because yeah. you should be, at the very least, your album should be, very, very concise. I'd rather people argue about whether or not they like it from, not from technical uh, standpoint, like, oh, the drums are off here and the, the bass is flat and the guitar player doesn't know how to play. I mean, from the standpoint of this is not my cup of tea. I don't like music like this. Yeah. You know, a lot of times artists are evolving through their records. 
So I used Radiohead as an example, which I'm sure Mm -hmm. everyone is already fucking very well tired of. But you have Pablo Honey, which I actually think is an okay record. But then you you wind up next with the Benz and then you get OK Computer Mm -hmm. and then you get Kid A. There is a very clear evolution of that band Mm -hmm. from album one to album four and beyond. Right. Like they're they're moving in a direction and they just keep trying to get better and better and better going back to <laughs> uh, what you were talking about with that band you were working in it's like okay well we sound like kid a here's pablo honey here you go record person listen to our pablo honey you know because we're working on kid a right now and they'll immediately walk away of course they would because you're lying to them yeah well it's not just that it's lying but if someone says to me Give me your re- give me your CV, your resume, however you want to call it, your curriculum vitae. Give me y- you. I'm yeah. not going to hand hand them a CV that says, in 1993, I worked at a camera store. <laughs> no, and that's where my resume starts and ends, because they're going to be like, well, I thought you were a gifted person in this or that, or I thought you had ability. Yeah, I do, but I just haven't bothered to give you the updated and better version of what my CV is, right? right? It almost shows a laziness to me on the part because that's I was fighting to not have those albums given to her because they sounded nothing like what we sounded like the night she saw us. The album we were doing sounded an awful lot like what we, you know, were doing. Yeah. And what she liked is what she saw. Yeah, it's it's essentially we we said, yeah, you think we're beautiful. Here's a picture of us taking a shit on the toilet. See what they think of that. The first impression was gone. It, it, nothing ever came out of that. No, you know? no. And that's that's where you wind up hurting yourself the most as well as the thing is, is is a lot of times bands put a focus on a label and a don't realize what a label actually is. And B probably are not at the point where they need one. And here's, I think, the number one misconception about record labels, at least the major record labels. I don't want to speak to sort of like independence or whatever, but people think that somehow a record label is just going to give them success. The moment I get signed is the moment I can kind of throw my hands up and forget all the other responsibilities of being a musician and just let the label do it. And that's fundamentally wrong. Number one. A label, at least a major, really is the bank that is paying money on a loan Mm -hmm. to your music career, right? Yeah. They are fronting a loan of money. (laughs) They expect that to come back. They expect Mm -hmm. to make a return. So don't think of a label as like your your buddies that are going to, you know, sell you a million copies in a month. Really what a label is looking for, at least, you know, back in my day when you signed the labels, is is a, a, a loan partnership that sort of gives you a little bit more, sort of the more successful you become. And right. for a lot of artists, they're not there. They are simply not there. Or, oddly enough, they may actually do a lot better without a label. Mm-hmm. What they maybe should be looking for is... A publicist. There you go. A manager, someone on their side to get them slightly better gigs, to help them move their their product independently. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe the focus should be a bit more on that. And, and, and having your own sort of honest self-criticism will help you 
to find where that is. Because a lot of times people just want to jump on that label and run with that. And it's a, for the most part, it's a fantasy. (laughs) So get off the fantasy and get into reality a little bit. That's the thing that that a lot of musicians sort of like they fantasize and drool over, oh, well, Led Zeppelin got $500,000 in 1968 from Atlantic (laughs) Records, blah, blah, blah. Atlantic Records didn't back up the Brinks truck and say, hey, boys, you want to you want to make like Scrooge McDuck and go dive into all those one dollar bills. That's not what happened. No, you know, it's a front. We're going to give you this money because we believe in you. So let's imagine that, you know, X, Y, Z label loves Adam Percy's band and says, here's 40,000 bucks to get you going. This is because you're going to need this for this and this and this. And Adam Percy being the pie in the sky dreamer says, Oh my God, 40 grand. That's more money than I've ever seen in my life. I'm quitting my job. You know, the next thing you know, the label comes back and says, okay, so when we gave you that money, we were hoping that you were going to put some of that towards, oh, I don't know, uh, swag, gear, stuff, you know, and it, a record in order for you, <laughs> rec- the record, maybe, maybe, maybe pay the studio with that, you yeah. know, while you're recording. And then you come back and say, no, but I bought this dope synth, man. I'd always wanted this mini Moog and this mini Moog was like 30 grand. And now I had 40 grand. So I bought a mini Moog, (laughs) you know, and then the label says, but we, okay, so we'll give you some more money. And then you're like, woohoo, I'm so glad I quit my job. And you're like, wow, all this free stuff. None of it's free. None of it's free. You have to pay it all back. Oh, dude, I have had a bit of an eye-opening experience way back in the day. Everyone take a shot now. <laughs> Way back in the yeah. day on tour when I was on tour in Europe and I, I was with was playing with a, a band called Econoline Crush. And I can't remember. I think we were in Cologne, in Cologne, Germany. And of course, you know, A&R for the European label comes out and they're like, they want to take us to dinner. So they find this, you know, really expensive Chinese or Thai restaurant and take us out like a 1500 euro dinner or something the whole band the manager the A&R rep the A&R rep's friend great big table in the middle of this restaurant the the A&R guy at the end of the meal puts the credit card down and my manager's like no there was this whole sort of back and forth about who was going to pay for it and I'm like what like let the label pay for it it's fine and afterwards the manager pulled me aside and he said you do realize that he's just going to pay for that and then charge us later for the dinner Like the the label's not paying for it. Uh, The label just Mm -hmm. got a free meal off the band (laughs) because they're just going to call that an expense that the band had to go out to dinner. But it's always presented as this, oh, you know, hey, you know, let let the label treat you. No, they're not treating you. (laughs) They're just going to put that Mm -hmm. put that in the band's expenses pile. And uh, you just recoup that with sales later on. <laughs> so that's it. So that fifteen, yeah, the fifteen hundred dollar meal is what? That's one hundred and fifty records. So yeah, assuming that you were getting the you know the full ten bucks out of each of the albums that you're putting oh yeah, out, so. it was even less than that. But yeah, it's it's like yeah, yeah, totally. So you got to you got to sell two thousand records in order to pay for that meal, something like that. So and it's it's like that at time too with the band that we were in, where again, best foot forward, the band hadn't been together in a million years. Yeah. I'd never been in the band prior. We start uh, we start rehearsing. We only had a couple days to rehearse. We all lived on uh, different parts of the the continent, actually. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and we get together. We're rehearsing in this place. It's you know, it's a rehearsal space. It's best we could do at the last minute. It's not super conducive to what we're trying to do. 
we get to the gig gig is is in a small place which is it's supposed to be fun and friends and you know it's kind of like woohoo we're kind of back you know buy us drinks kind of thing (laughs) and and then the next thing i know uh one of the guys in the band has invited a few label heavyweights and they are there and i'm like fuck (laughs) yeah yeah this is one of those times where you feel like trying to make your first impression with, you know, your girlfriend's parents. And then you go and you take a big bomb and stinking shit and you plug their toilet up and it overflows. <laughs> That's what it felt like. Yeah. And not only that, I'll, I'll be honest. The only reason that mainly irked me is because up until that point, that was actually supposed to be just a fun gig for friends. Next thing yeah. you know, you know, before we go on stage, it is now no longer. And now I need to pull something out of me. In terms of my performance, all of a sudden it's, oh, now I have to like escalate this when really I was just looking to kind of kick back and have a beer on stage and, you know, hang with some friends I haven't Mm -hmm. seen in like four years and like yada, yada, yada. So all of a sudden there's this expectation put on the gig. And if you're not ready for that, athletes, again, they train to get to that one moment where they win the Olympic gold, but they run races repeatedly. They don't win every race, they, but they train and they mm. run and they run and they run all to get to that one point. If your goal is a label, all of our previous discussion aside, if that's your goal, great. Mm-hmm. But don't think that you're going to run the 100 meter in 9.7 seconds when you haven't run a race in 25 years. <laughs> it's not going to happen, man. You're not you are not ready for that. That's it. Well the the goalposts got moved. That was the problem. I remember years ago and we're talking days. We're talking the 80s when I was in a band with John Greenberg and Andy Hober and Adam Highland. We had a manager which was the greatest thing since sliced bread because he said to us You guys just do what you do. You keep recording. You keep practicing. You keep writing. You play the music. He took care of all of the other stuff. And sadly, he didn't live very long. But one of the things that he did do is that he actually got Virgin Records to come out and listen to us at a show. Come and see us. He didn't tell us. He didn't tell us that they were coming because that's a good manager. It's not like game time in sports where you say like, okay, guys, this is make or break. You know, everybody's got clay hands and they they can't put the puck in the net or whatever your sports analogy is going to be he just said to us that night hey man you're playing here again and this was i think uh oh it was the cabana room which was a classic room in toronto at the corner of king and spadina he didn't say anything to us about virgin being there he just said get up there boys knock knock it out of the park as you guys always do and we get up there and you know we play our show and we have a good show it's a really good show and then he tells us a couple of days later, yeah, Virgin guys were there. They really dug you. And it was like, what? Wait, what? You know, and this is back in the day when there was a record industry still. Sadly, uh, a, a few weeks later, he was killed in a car accident. So nothing ever came out of that because when we lost him, it's sort of like the glue of the band fell apart at that point. We were doing the artistic stuff. We were doing everything. You know, we had no contacts. We don't know anybody, yeah. right? So I don't have a Rolodex with some famous people's names. I don't, geez, I barely even know who the paper boy is that delivers the papers to my mom and dad's place at the <laughs> yeah. time. You know, that's about as media yeah. savvy as I was, you know, and the same with the rest of the guys in the band. 
We're just a bunch of dopey musicians writing some good songs. All a manager is, is somebody who organizes your shit and is the guy who stand or the gal standing in your corner. The, the almost like the veto power. He's not the one with the absolute power, but he's the one who sort of steers the direction. And, you know, a lot of times finding yourself someone to be in your corner is far more important. And oddly enough, I think in your example, had things not taken such a, such a, a, a tragic turn, might have led to mm-hmm. you, well, obviously it was sort of in the works. He, he brought people from Virgin. He thought you were ready. He could stand in your corner and back up that band to a record mm-hmm. label and say, these guys play relentlessly. They kick fucking ass. They're opening for I.I. at the Markham Theater. They're blah, 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 blah. And yeah. all the band needs to do is focus on putting their best foot forward on a recording and doing a show and things that help you to do that should be the priority. I think, but I think you're right. Publicist or a manager has to come first and then let them shop you because let's be honest as musicians, we go through alternate moments. There are two of us at any time, right? Half the time you think that's the greatest fucking thing I've ever heard. I'm on that. My God, why do people not love it? The other half of the time, you say, my God, I can't play. I can't write. I'm fucking shit. I should just go take a call center job in one of those call centers that steals money from old old <laughs> ladies. You know, that's how terrible I am as a person. And that's what I deserve. So you waffle, you know, you wobble back and forth between these two feelings, right? A manager is the one that says, so you have a bad rehearsal. Okay. Shake, shake, shake it off. Your job is just to get up there and dance, monkey. That's it. And you know? and I know it's different now in this day and age. Like there are actually bands that do manage themselves and there are bands that, you know, maybe do their own publicity and they do that well. And publicity ain't fucking cheap, man. And managers take anywhere from 15 to 20%. So it's recognizing in yourself when the time has come. North Star Jack, we debated endlessly because we had been playing quite a lot of shows in Toronto yeah. and- to be fair, I think we sounded we were pretty tight. Like we'd we'd we had live recordings of ourselves. We knew we could sound we yep. sounded pretty good. I think our song the songs that Gareth was writing were really great. Yeah. And I think we'd hit a point where all right, well, we just kind of need someone in our corner because we can't really go beyond where we are now. Hey, man, it was great to play the horseshoe regularly, but we really weren't going too much farther outside of the four one six. How do, how do we expand beyond that? To put a pin in this topic, I guess, you have, again, it's a cliche. You only have one chance for a good first impression. Exactly. And so you got to do it. You got to do it in the right way. And you got to make sure that, you know, the question you ask yourself, am I giving the best of what I've got? Is this good enough? Then I should probably not share it at this point. You know? You know, maybe... We should also think about that other segment that we've been kind of neglecting. Oblique strategy. 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 You know what I mean? In his best Johnny Rotten. (laughs) (laughs) And know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) This is not a love song. Somebody's coffee has just an extra scoop of sugar in it this day. Oh, yeah. A little little bit of anarchy in my coffee. Are you ready, Adam? I have got a doozy for you. Oh, 
Okay. All right. Bring on the doozy. Dump it on me. Let it rain. What mistakes? Are you ready? Here we go. Yep. What mistakes did you make last time? Uh, you know, I've been working on um, sort of my own material of late. Mm-hmm. And one of the mistakes that I do regularly is to keep things simple. And I'm talking specifically about tracking and mix. I know a producer who worked on Biff Naked's record back in the day. And I remember uh, we were working on one song and he'd asked me to sort of like come up with like sort of like a melodic keyboard line. And this is a you know young kid who who's really just into Einstein and Neubauten and Neitzerab and industrial music. So I I don't do melodic lines. I do bass lines and you know heavy mm-hmm. drum sounds and beats. And so he was pushing me out of my envelope a little. And to the point, he had me do this line. And at first I was really cringy and sort of like, eh, this is really you know sort of pop Britney Spears and I don't Mm -hmm. do that Mm -hmm. you know and I listen back on it now and I'm kind of like you know that was really good and the one thing he told me was like just put it down if it doesn't work we'll take it out in the mix but just put it down and so what I've been working on to come back full circle is yeah when I track I throw the kitchen sink at everything I'm twiddling knobs I'm breaking out synthesizers I haven't played in like four years. And and then when it comes to the mix, I remove the clutter and I get really self-critical and I cut things out. And this was a problem. This is something that I used to do regularly is I tried to make everything that I threw at a song when I was tracking into mm-hmm. the mix. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with taking things out. So I'm trying to sort of Again, be very self-critical of the things that I record. That's that's good. That's good advice too, I think. Yeah, don't be afraid to take things out. Like not everything is going to fit. Mm-hmm. You become you wind up being like a hoarder. <laughs> Towers of like guitars and with dead mice behind them and things, you know, <laughs> starting to smell funny and everything smells like old newspapers and you know, I think you know. I think that's good advice because that's something that people can listen. They can listen to your idea and say like, okay, so yeah, that does make sense. I've had instances in my case when I was recording with Jennifer Johnson, we'd recorded some guitar parts in a song, parts that fit perfectly, that sounded great. And then a piano player came in, played some stuff, which we liked better, but no longer fit with the guitar. Yeah. So listen to the two of them together. And there's like, there's a few clashes of notes and things. And it's not because they're both playing wrong notes. It's because... One guy had one approach and one guy had a different approach. And then it was a matter of, well, what, what approach do we like better? And Jennifer and I decided that the piano part was pretty dynamite. We, we dug it. We decided that it no longer fit with the guitar part. So what did we do? Mute button. Yep. Guitar Absolutely. part. Boom. Mute. But we left the lead in that he had written the solo in the middle, the guitar solo, which made a lot of sense and sounded great. But the guitar part itself came out because it didn't fit into the vision. Musicians, a lot of the time, I think, sometimes get really clingy and precious to the things they create. And I I think a lot of the best artists, I'm not lumping just musicians with this, but I think a lot of the best artists out there are also very good editors. This is why you don't bring the whole band in for mix. No. Because I I remember, okay, so I'm mixing with Jennifer and the first couple of songs we mixed with everyone else around, it's like, well, I don't hear myself as well anymore. And I don't, eventually it was just like, okay, you know what? From now on, Jen, you come over. We're going to do this together. 
these other idiots are not going to be around. This is your record. I'm helping you put this together. I'm producing this album for you. I'm recording this album for you. I'm mixing this album for you. I want you to be happy and I want a good product at the end of the day. That's the point. Or even, you know, I think a common thing is either like uh, the guitar player or the keyboard player walking all over the vocals. It's not the guitar player show. It's not the keyboard player show. I mean, obviously, it depends on the kind of band that you're in. But, you know, I know in country and rock, that's a big no-no, man. You you just, you're not, it is not about you. (laughs) You are part of a collective unit that needs to sound cohesive across the board. And if that means your guitar part comes down in the verse, then you're just going to have to live with that because it's not about you. So, Which leads us. To the next oh, one. we have another the one. Next yes, one. bring it. And I think this actually, Adam, you're going to love all this right. one. I know you're going to love I this I love one. them all, like my children, of which I only have one. <laughs> <laughs> as far as I know. Abandon Normal Instruments. Oh, yeah, I do love that one. That is something that if you run a session well, you should allow yourself to do near the end. So... um I can use an example where I was producing this band in Vancouver called uh, Sex with Strangers. Um, Don't Google that because you get something completely different than what you're expecting. But um, Or Google it. Have fun. One thing that, that a lot of producers do that we do regularly is create a tracking chart. So you have a list of songs down the left column, and then along the top you have the list of instruments for that song. Uh, so it's mm-hmm. like this big grid. It's like a spreadsheet. And you could just get a piece of paper and piece of Bristol board and some magic marker or some stickers or something and make your own. And what we would do is, you know, we sort of planned our session around this grid. It's super handy because it gives you an idea of your progress as you record, especially if you're recording on a budget. So what you do is when you finish the drum tracks on one song, you put a sticker in that box in, on the grid. That song is tracked and then da, 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 and you do it with each instrument and you fill the grid up with stickers or with check marks or whatever. And one of the things that we did, we, we had this other column that was incidentals, other stuff. And that was generally, we left that for the last day, but we had been so efficient at tracking everything else that we had an entire day in the studio where we could do that. The, the engineer at the studio just broke out these boxes of random instruments. Some of them are like toys and some of them are like weird whistles and kazoos and kalimbas and yada, 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 yada. And it was like, okay, let's add some extra things. Let's see if this works. Like just for fun, it was experimental. And we we went kind of hog wild for an entire day, sort of going, oh, w- would a slide whistle work here? I don't know. Mm. <laughs> and there is no slide whistle on that record, but Hey man, you try it and you have fun and you would actually be really surprised at how much even little things like, um, uh, like sleigh bells It's weird, but sleigh yeah. bells actually work really well as an alternative to tambourines or, or to hi-hat little odds and sods, throw in some random stuff. And, and I myself actually have a drawer in my studio full of things like that. I think it's important if you're doing it yourself to have that drawer of fun little things. You just never know. Well, when uh, and I work with a guy named Johnny Cool and on his album That Cold Year, there was a song that he had said that you know, you know we're not going to have drums in this song. And I'm like that's fine, that's fine. And it was a very orchestral sounding song yeah. to me. And it was very big and I said, "Listen, you know, have you ever considered 
putting something like timpani in that song. He's like, yeah, but I don't know anyone that plays timpani. And I'm like, I do. I said, I used to play timpani in the orchestra as a kid. I know how to play timpani still. If you can get your hands on some timpani, which is not something that, you know, (laughs) sure, if you're with the Montreal Symphony Orchestra, yeah, they've got four or five timpani laying around and that's in pretty much, you know, just about all of the pieces. But it hasn't been since like Led Zeppelin's song remains the same that that there's timpani in something, right? That's rock and roll. Well, and it doesn't tend to be in the random instrument drawer either. (laughs) Well, yeah, they're kind of big. big. So... He said, if I'm, if I'm willing to do it, he's going to go rent a couple. So we did timpani and it worked out really well. And it added an extra dimension to the song that, you know, it, it's not that the song would have been so much better with it. Oh, it's the timpani that saved that terrible song. It's not that. It was just another, another layer of flavor in that multi-layer cake in that millefeuille that you're eating. It's just another layer, you know? On that same album, I did all kinds of crazy percussion stuff. Like you talked about sleigh bells and jingle bells and triangles and shakers and tambourines. And I even played djembe on a, on a bit of it as well. Years ago, 20 years ago, I did an album uh, for fun with a fr- my friend Paul Casey. And this album, you talk about abandoning typical instruments. Uh, he shows up with a Casio DG10. Do you know what that is? <laughs> yeah, man, totally. It's the synthesizer guitar, yeah. Yeah, and it's a cheap one. It's not like the Roland ones, which were like two, three it thousand bucks. It had like plastic day, right? strings. I remember that. I remember seeing yeah. it in Radio yeah. Shack going like, it has pl- everything on it is plastic. It had plastic strings. Yeah, it does. And it was like, you know, it reacts to the way you play it and strum it and the way you, you you're fingering on the neck. And so he shows up with that. And I'm like, all right, well, we're going to do this entire electronic thing. So out comes the Mattel Synsonics drum machine, <laughs> right? With this, I was programming this thing. And mix in my Pearl Syncussion drums from the 1970s, which is basically weird synthesizer drums. The Sinair, and then some Simmons mixed with the Alesis D4. So it's essentially this weird sort of mishmash of stuff, right? And we just start recording. And at the end of it, we've got, I've got like six tapes of 15 minute songs. At the end of the day, the entire process required out of the box thinking. Yeah. It was all about non-conventional instruments. I mean, a DG-10, like you might bring that out as a lark for a tune, right? Yeah, I think sort of taking what my friend Glenn Rosenstein said on the Biff Naked sessions is you're never going to know until you try, but if you don't put it down, it'll never happen. You know? Well, I mean, we can post the link to the album I just spoke of that I did with Paul. Yeah. I have it up on Bandcamp and, uh, I still, it's funny. I listened to it the other day because sometimes you know how it is. You listen to your old music and you go, Oh, why did I not finish that? Why did I leave that noise in there? Oh my God, this is... (laughs) This is aging poorly. This is this is the mullet with the Cosby sweater, you know. Ah, this is killing me, right? But I listened to this the other day and I thought, "Huh. This is pretty fun actually." But non-conventional instruments. I'd love to do like like Radio Shack mics like you talked about or you know, the Synsonics. I actually pulled the Synsonics out the other day and I have it sitting beside me yeah, right man. now. Yeah, man. And it's such a cool little drum machine, you know? I remember those Synsonics. Never discount the toy store for interesting noisemakers. Uh, a lot of producers look for even like cheap, crappy pedals or amps from the, the 70s that were the discount brand amps. 
that mm-hmm. no self-respecting guitar player would ever look at with a clean eye. But you just never know what you can reamp things through or what weird little noises you can make that just kind of make things gel and work a bit better. Well, hey, man, I think this is this is killing. This is a killing episode, man. It's always good to catch up with you. Well, as they say in the, I don't know where they say this, so I'm not even going to say uh. it. That's, what, that's what's <laughs> happening right now. Check out our website, like us on Facebook, like us on Instagram, follow our pages, follow everything, follow all of our words, follow us, you must follow us, we, we will lead the way. We are Spotify and iTunes. We even have a LinkedIn page now because we're that fancy. Yes. So we have t-shirts. Adam has designed a, a killing t-shirt, which I think you all need to buy. Yeah. And... They're made to order. Yep. You want one today? You order it. They, You will get one. You want five? They will make you five. And I want to say, too, don't forget to get on our mailing list either, because we have been sending out actually Please. a lot of little email blasts, giving people some heads up on our episodes. And But we also like to just stay in touch with you guys. You know, we get on our well, list because we want to stay in touch with you. And uh, it's, it's a great way to get more things brutal in your life. So, Adam, I guess I will catch you on the flip side and we will talk sometime soon. Hey, everybody. Goodbye. Bye. Audible Brutality is presented by Adam Percy and Tim Vandeven and recorded remotely on Denman Island, British Columbia and in St. Jerome, Quebec. Music submissions or general inquiries can be made through our website at audiblebrutality.com. Give us a like on Facebook or Instagram. And of course, if you haven't yet, subscribe to the Audible Brutality podcast on iTunes or Spotify. Thanks for listening.